Christian faith was once very dominant within yeah. the culture, just like Lambeth Palace dominated the landscape mm. around here, which was largely yeah. fields and moorlands yeah. and so on. But now it sort of feels quite That's small enough. compared yes. to all these other these other sort of buildings around. But I guess the question is, you know, does the vision that has inspired the banks, the office blocks, is that a vision that can really sustain people's lives over the long term and give them that sense of wider enchantment, mm. a bigger view of life? Can it do that or actually does it actually sort of shrink the soul? Yeah. Hello there, welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen here at Lambeth Palace Library. Yes, you can find us, this podcast, and heaps of other content at seenandunseen.com. I'm Justin Briley. And I'm Belle Tindall. And we are your co hosts, and this is our very first inaugural episode of the Reenchanting podcast. Very exciting, isn't very it? Very exciting. Yes, and what an amazing location to be doing it. This is the, the top floor of the Lambeth Palace Library, a relatively new building. But yes. you work here, don't you, Belle? I do work here. I suppose if you're listening to this, you'll have to take our word for it. But it's spectacular. The view is <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, I've, and it, it blows me away every time. The novelty hasn't yeah. worn off yet. Basically, for those who can't see it on the video, we, we have the London skyline behind us. Big Ben, the mm. Houses of Parliament, it's all there. And, and it's absolutely gorgeous. So, so yeah, what a, what a place to start the podcast but uh, our very special guest on this first edition of the Reenchanting podcast is Graham Tomlin. Well hello Justin, hello, hello Belle, nice hello. to see you. it's great to see you. You obviously know each other well because Graham's your hmm. boss isn't he? Belle? Graham is my boss so this adds a, an extra level of pressure to proceedings <laughs> perhaps. Well, I, have, I have told Belle she doesn't have to behave, she can <laughs> yeah. ask me this if she wants. I should make the most of this, this might be the one time. Your one chance. <laughs> my one chance to probe. And, and Graham won't be watching you every episode of the podcast either, he's just our special guest on the first edition. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I shall watch every single one. Well I'm sure one. you will but you, you, won't, you won't be in the background brooding you know. No, that's to true. check the bell behaves herself. Who knows what could happen? Yes, um, yes. Just to give a little bit of background to you, mm-hmm. Graham, uh, you are the former Bishop of Kensington. You've served also as the principal and president of St. Melitus College, mm-hmm. Training College. Um, you're an author. I think mm-hmm. your most recent book was titled Why Being Yourself is a Bad Idea. Uh, yeah, I think the last but one that was. But, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well, there. I love the title. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we'll ask you about that a bit yeah, later sure. on. Uh, and you lead the Centre for Cultural Witness here at Lambeth Palace mm. Library. Um, Seen and Unseen is the website. So mm. do you want to start by sort of telling us what Seen and Unseen is? Well, Seen and Unseen is the title of a new website, which is um, has the tagline Christian Perspectives on Just About Everything. And it's um, it's called that. It's called Seen and Unseen because we're interested in the seen realities, the things that everyone knows about. We're interested in law and economics and mm. politics and housing and architecture and arts and everything else. But we're also interested in the unseen realities that that make sense of the scene. Um, the world of God and the Trinity and the spiritual and the mysterious and the uh, the mystical and those things that very often get missed out on kind of your regular opinion websites Um so we're trying to sort of say, how does the world look like when you view it through Christian eyes? Mm. Mm. And um, so try to bring together the seen and the unseen at the same time. And so that's really what the website is trying to do. Fantastic. Mm. Um, and it is part of the Centre for Cultural Witness. Oh. Do you want to explain what that is as well in a, in a nutshell? Well, Centre for Cultural Witness is a, is a new initiative that is um, based here at Lambeth Palace Library. It's sort of hosted here and within the Church of England, but its aim is not really just, it's not, it's not about promoting Anglicanism or the Church of England. It's about uh, promoting Christian faith in this country. And it's, about, it's about enabling people to understand the riches that Christian faith has to offer uh, our world. We are, we've got 2,000 years of reflection on what it means to, to be human, how human societies work, on what who and what God is, all those kind of big questions that most of us ask from time to time. And, and yet very often that wisdom isn't really available or accessible to many, many people. And so this is a, an attempt to try to make that more accessible, to make the kind of church's voice a little bit stronger in public life these days. Fantastic. Well, well, on the Reenchanted podcast, we're aiming to sort of draw that out through the guests we have on uh, and talk about the way their journeys and life and the work that they do in some way reflects the Christian story, even if they're not necessarily Christian themselves. Mm. I, you are a Christian, aren't you? 
last time I last checked. Last time I looked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, but we thought it would be fun each time to start with a, with a particular question. Yes. Bell. Yeah. So seeing as we are on the top floor of uh, a library, not just any library, Lambeth mm. Palace Library, we thought we'd start by asking what book you have on your bedstand at the moment. Yeah. Give us a talk through that. Or books. Books. Plural, knowing Yeah, you. well, I'm, a, I'm one of those people who kind of reads about three books at once. And I normally try <laughs> to read probably a theology book. And yes, maybe yeah. uh, Maybe a novel. Okay. And maybe a sort of, you know, book of contemporary interest. So in those three categories, I guess at the moment, um, the book on my um, bedside table is a, is a book called uh, Rewilding the Sea by a guy called Charles Clover. It's basically about, um, I only just started it, so I couldn't tell you what it's all about, but mm. uh, a friend gave it to me and um, really interesting. It was basically about how, you know, how we, have, we've, we are slowly destroying our seas through, not just through waste and plastic and everything else, but by overfishing and by okay. uh, damaging um, the, you know, the, the ecosystem of, of, our, of, of our seas. And actually, by, if we kind of left them alone, mm. they would mm, not only sure. become much more healthy in their own right, but they would actually... Yeah assist in the whole um, story of climate change anyway, because mm. a healthy sea would absorb carbon and everything else. Anyway, it's Rewilding the Sea. Mm. That's my one book. Um, the novel, I've just actually just finished reading uh, Brideshead Revisited. Oh, that's classic. a great novel yes. from the 1940s by yeah. Evelyn Waugh, which um, I think I read many years ago, but I've forgotten about. And, um, so I'll be reading that. And then, then uh, my theology book is, I mean, at the moment I'm writing a, a, a biography of Blaise Pascal, the um, French philosopher and apologist of the 17th century so i'm right i'm reading a book called um the logic of the heart which um, is about pascal and augustine mm, and one of those right. other figures as well ah. so that just gives me a little very taste good. Of very good I, I like the variation there yeah that's great yeah. I, yeah. I like the fact you've got the, the non-fiction the fiction and the theology book and you just do them all at the same time yeah different because, times yeah, a day yeah so last thing at night it's always the novel yeah uh, first thing in the morning it's always the theology that's then, quite a way to wake yourself up. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I'm kind of, you know, Some one of people, people might say send yourself to sleep, um, depending on yeah. the theology book. But depending. yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I find theology doesn't send me to sleep. It gets me thinking too much. And then <laughs> yes, I'm kind of awake yeah. thinking about the idea. So I need something just to kind of <laughs> calm me down. Whereas first thing in the morning, I'm quite alert. And yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a morning person. Yeah. So sure. actually a good bit of sort of rich, yeah. thought provoking theology is quite oh. good first thing in the morning. Great. Well, yeah. well, we'll ask you the same question in a year and see what see what books yeah. are on the bedstand. Yeah. I hope I'm still not the same ones. Books, yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't be a great review, would it? It wouldn't really. Um, I think it was you who suggested the name of this podcast, as I seem oh. to recall, Graham, in one of our early meetings. Reenchanting. What what made you attracted to that title? Well, a number of things really. One is, I guess you you can't avoid that theme of enchantment. No. It's, it's sure. everywhere in our culture this yeah. morning. Even coming in this yeah. morning on the tube. I saw this um, poster about, I think it was the Royal Opera House that was advertising, a, I'm not sure what it was, but it had the big word enchanted mm. across mm. the top of it. And um, there's something about enchantment that, that just captures people. That, that I think, yeah. So I think there is a, a genuine desire for um, a kind of more enchanted world. And, and maybe that's, that's a testimony to a sense that people have that, that, that life has become disenchanted it's become mm. people have become disenchanted mm. with life a sort of lack of mystery a lack of enchantment a lack of wonder and so therefore it speaks into something that's quite deep within our hearts and mm. culture but at the same time um it also speaks i think also into what christian faith can can bring to the mm. world um the um the, the last book I, I wrote was um the one just after um, wiping yourself is a bad idea. Uh, it was it was a book on um, uh, called navigating a world of grace, um, and the subtitle was the the promise of generous orthodoxy. It was a book about the Nicene Creed, mm. and it was about how the Nicene Creed. I mean, people often think that creeds close you down; they yeah. stop you thinking; they give you sure. all kinds of things you've got to believe and sign up to. But the reality is that the, the best creeds don't. They open out a much bigger mm-hmm. world. So, hence the title of this website yeah. which comes from the Nicene Creed yeah. God is the maker of all things seen and unseen if you're a pure materialist if you think all that is is what you can see all you're interested in is the seen yeah the things you can see and feel and touch yeah but actually what the Nicene Creed tells us is that that God is the maker of all seen seen and unseen there are all mm. kinds of unseen realities around us that enchanted world which only if we if we only open our eyes to it we can see and so my I guess my hope for this podcast that it will 
open people's eyes to that bigger world, yeah. the unseen reality. The, the, the sort of the more things in heaven and earth than can be dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Exactly. Sort of exactly view. right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Quite right. I, I love that. You say we've become disenchanted. What's driven that, and what does that look like in our culture? Well, I think it's it's a kind of. I mean, it, it, I think it's, it's, it's been going on for quite some time within our culture. I think the loss of a sense of an overarching sort of what was called a sort of sacred canopy, that idea of there being a, a broader, grander structure of reality that was given to us by a God who made us. And uh, you know, in, the, in the medieval world, they they expanded that in all kinds of fantastic directions with sort of angels and demons and everything else mm. and all those things things too. And you don't have to go in all those directions, but still there was that sense of a, of a bigger world than just what you can see around you. And I suppose it, it was probably disenchanted a little bit by the scientific revolution um science has brought us remarkable things you know we would we wouldn't want to live in a pre-scientific mm. world but mm. one of the maybe sort of um byproducts of that sort of scientific discovery is has been a, a sort of feeling that that the only things that matters are the things you can explore in a test tube mm. and therefore if you can't see it in a test tube it doesn't really exist or mm-hmm. it doesn't matter at all yeah. um and so, um, so that's led to a sort of disenchantment, a sense that there is no mystery beyond the things that we can see mm-hmm. and feel. Um, whereas actually instinctively, we kind of sense we're made for something bigger and yeah. something that is unseen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's partly that. It's, it's partly, you know, the reductionist approach that everything is, everything is politics, everything is power, everything is material. If that's your view of the world, then you end up with a very disenchantment. Mm. You know, disenchanted world and a disenchanted heart, I think. Yeah. And you would think that that would make us, we would feel comfortable in disenchantment because it's a focus on things we can measure, things yeah. we can understand, things we can grasp, and things we can control. Yeah. So actually, that we would quite like that space, a disenchanted space. But actually, do you sense, do you see a real dissatisfaction with that then? Yeah. It's a, a yearning I think for re enchantment. It's, it's a really good point, Belle, that. Um, that actually when we do reduce the world to things we can yeah. control, yeah. it actually becomes a much duller place. For sure, um, yeah. And uh, it just strikes me that when, when when you begin to imagine and live as if there are unseen realities beyond the ones that we see. Yeah. And obviously, you know, when you start to explore mm. those, then mm. there's all kinds of other kind of moral questions that come up to, you know, there are unseen good realities and mm. bad realities. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why the, 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 sure. you know, the, the, the medieval, our medieval ancestors talked about sort of angels and demons and so on. Um, yeah. We could talk about that. That's a whole yeah. other kind of really fascinating <laughs> topic. But, you know, because they, they realize that, you know, they, the unseen realities are not all benign. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are kind of dark forces that mm. work in our world at the same time. Uh, but to deny those gives you, gives you a lack of explanatory power to explain some of the, the kind of mystery of being human, this extraordinary mm, yes. capacity we've got for goodness and creativity, but also the horrendous capacity we also have for cruelty and damage and evil and so on i mean yeah. i mean part of what we're trying to do with the re-enchanting podcast as you know is to to talk to guests who have all kinds of expertise who work in fields of science and arts and culture politics whatever it may be and ask how do we re-enchant those spheres and we've invited you on to, to ask really how do we in a big sense re-enchant culture mm. what what are you hoping we'll hear in this course of hearing from various people in those different fields and in the way that they perhaps can help us to think about how we re-enchant them. And at the end of the day, what does it have to do with, I suppose, the Christian story in the end? Well, I guess the, the, the Christian story, I think, gives you, a, um, as I was saying a moment ago, just a, a bigger picture of reality. Um, and not, not a sort of fantastical one that's just sort of dreamt up out of, out of nowhere, but one that's been deeply considered, thought about, pondered for centuries and millennia as i say two thousand years of thinking about these things um but actually a, a kind of wisdom that's rather been discarded very hastily within mm-hmm. our culture even you know within the last 50 years um you sense you know, people growing up today know actually very little about christian faith and its content um and we rather bracket it out of of our understanding of the world um so for example some some while ago i was reading an article about um about John Milton, mm. um, you know, the author of Paradise yeah. Lost, and yeah. and uh, that's because he's most most famous for. Um, but he also had a particular role in the kind of English Civil War, and basically this is what the article was about. It was about his importance as a figure in English history, as a poet, as mm. a sort of political figure, and so on. And the article didn't mention once the fact that he was a Christian. 
And I kind of thought, how could you understand John Milton without understanding that he was a Christian? Mm. That was absolutely core to his identity. His whole yeah. view of the world was shaped by his his Christian faith. Both his politics and his poetry are sort of suffused by it. And I think where we are in, as a culture is because we don't because we don't really understand faith any longer. We kind of bracket it to one side and we think, well, that's not really important. Mm. What really matters is that person's approach to economics or politics or gender or whatever it is we happen to be interested in. And um, and so that that's kind of how we get... And so, so I suppose one of the things I'm hoping for from this podcast mm. is that in all those different fields, whether you're talking to a historian or an economist or a, um, you know, whatever it might, might be, mm. you're able to kind of help them um, help others Re, you know, see those figures from the past, mm. those movements, those aspects of contemporary life, you know, with with new eyes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, to bring in that faith dimension that suddenly opens it out to a much sort of richer and sort of brighter vision of the world. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the the present as well. If you think about the present, and you think about what things people are being drawn to, um, you know, whether that's Charlie Mackesy's, and I've written about all of this kind of thing a lot for Seen and Unseen. So. That's a good plug, plug actually, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you can plug. <laughs> you can find yep, a whole lot about it. Yeah, check out the articles. <laughs> the ones by Belton, no, I'm joking. The ones exactly. by all of them. They go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, but you know, whether that's Charlie Mackesy's, you know, short film that's been seen by nine million people now, and it's got yeah. so it's one of the most. That was seen the one that Oscar came out at films. Christmas. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the horse, the boy, the mole, and the fox. Yes. Did I, I get those in the right order? I have no I idea, remember, but, but it, yeah. they are the right characters, you know. Or or Stormzy's new album, or um, the Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan book, the Faith, Hope, and Carnage. All of these things, and some of them more explicitly Christian than others, but all of them are garnering way more popularity mm. than I think was predicted. Oh. And perhaps it's because all of them are pointing to this, um, you know, this that WH Auden quote, there's always more than meets the eye. There's always oh. another story. So it's like people have this craving for this. But I think you see that even, even with the popularity of, you know, the new Lord of the Rings saga yes, on Amazon yeah. and that sort of thing. Is there's a yearning. It feels like there's people love sci-fi, people love fantasy. That stuff hasn't gone away. If anything, it's, it, it's grown yeah. alongside the scientific revolution and, and, and the materialistic way of looking at the world. So it's almost yeah. like you've got these two competing things and, and it's, a, it's almost people love the fantasy side. Oh, they love yep. that mm. side of things, but they're kind of also wedded to this materialistic kind of, okay, but really the world isn't like yeah. that kind yeah. of way. Yeah. And as you say, I think the, the longing for fantasy, you know, you get... You get that, this incredibly interesting unicorns. Have you come across this? Mm-hmm. You know, little, little girls going on with little <laughs> yeah, unicorns. Yeah, they're all over the place, aren't they? Everywhere, yeah. yeah. And you can see that sort of plays into it in some ways, but you'd look at it and think, oh, hang on, come on, we all know that unicorns don't exist. Yeah. Um, I think they don't, do they? It's okay. <laughs> just looking at Belle here, isn't it? Don't worry. You'll be telling me Father Christmas isn't real next. Yeah, exactly, that's right. You know, but but there, is a, there is a kind of unreal um, kind of yearning for the fantastic, mm. for fantasy almost a sort of um, we wish it were true, but we kind of know it isn't sort of sure. thing. Um, but that seems to be quite different from a kind of rich spiritual tradition that mm. Christian faith offers, which is not just a few random people coming up with a few ideas in the last couple of decades. This is 2,000 years of people pondering yeah. this mm. yeah. view of the world that it comes from the entry into human history of what Christians believe God mm. himself entered into human history in the person yeah. of Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. Um, and so, you know, what does the world look like? That's the question I keep on coming back to when we think about seen and unseen, what we're trying to do in it. What does the world look like as a world where God has stepped onto the mm. stage of his own play, as it were? Yeah. Well, you know, what, what does yeah. this world look like as a world in which Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and therefore death is not the last word? Um, the world looks different yeah. if death is not the last word. Yeah. And our, our task yeah. as Christians is to describe that world, yeah. to make sense of it, and to, to, to bear witness to what we see, a world where death isn't the end. Mm. Um, and that casts its light back onto this world and makes it look different. And as we do that with the guests that we'll be bringing on, we're not obviously saying these experiences are exclusively in the remit of Christians alone. Hmm. It's obviously... We're, we're, we're bringing on a whole different suite of people who, who may or may not have claims to faith. But I think who, who if they're not Christians per se, they're, they're sympathetic to you and understand the role that Christian faith has played in perhaps 
giving them the field that they now work in or the way in which it has influenced the culture, the values, the, the things that they, they hold dear. So there's a sense in which this isn't a, an evangelistic project per se, but it's, it's more, as you say, about kind of just reminding people of the story that they have lived into and that, that life comes out of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a point that I think one of the, the guests you'll have on, on the, um, on the podcast, Tom Holland's been making for some time now, you know, how deeply Christian our culture mm. is and you can't escape it. Mm. It's kind of everywhere. And um, I think broadly speaking, he's, he's right on that. And, you know, he's not the only one, but a number of people have been making that point recently of, you know, how, how quickly we've forgotten the Christian story. And yet it's, it's, it, even looking out over the skyline, there are spires and towers mm-hmm. of churches all over the place. You know, across the way in the Houses of Parliament, when you mm-hmm. walk over, walk around that building, you, it's absolutely yeah. full of Christian yeah. iconography. It's mm-hmm. basically a Christian building. And yet somehow yeah. we don't always see it now. Uh, it's interesting yeah. how you only have to look up in mm-hmm. most parts of London and you will see some kind of Christian symbolism. Mm-hmm. And yet have we become so sort of inured to it because it's it's become part of the furniture in that sense? I think that's right. And, you know, it's sometimes said that you can tell what a culture worships by the buildings it puts up. <laughs> um, you know, what are the big buildings when you look out on a skyline here yeah. across London and the big cranes that are up there? What are they building? They're building office blocks. They're building mm-hmm. banks. They're building financial institutions. Mm-hmm. They're building railways. They're building houses. They're not building churches as much. Or, no. um, but back in 150 years ago, that's exactly what they were building. They were mm-hmm. building churches right the way across across london so buildings are a good measure mm-hmm. um but as you say we get used to them we get used to those church spires that are around the place um mm. and they are i feel like a symbol i, mean, I often think of I mean, where, where we're sitting here you've got lambeth palace itself just down there which once upon a time presumably was a dominant presence in this part of london you yeah. know you would look up at this huge mm-hmm. palace yeah. with its towers and its you know prestige and the archbishop the great archbishop would, would, would live there and so on now, of course, it's dwarfed by all these huge, great yeah. office blocks. and It's quite yeah. little. It is quite small. <laughs> it's quite, it's right. quite dinky, really, it, isn't well, it? Yeah. I hate to say that for palace, but it, it is. It's, it's, yeah. It, is, it I mean, does if, feel if dwarfed by London. If you were designing a palace now, you, <laughs> yeah. it would look like the gherkin or something. Exactly. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's not as big as Buckingham Palace. Maybe that's quite a good thing, actually, like, for a I church think palace. So. Yeah. Not, not good for the church to have a good palace, but you no, know, it's no, a no. kind of. It's a, it's and it a, reminds me more of a castle than a palace, if I'm if I'm honest. Oh, I, I don't okay. know if you distinguish the two. Yeah, but, maybe but it's for me, bit. it's like there's yeah. battlements, there's you sure, know, towers. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. But I think me. that's a bit of a sort of metaphor for the way in which Christian faith was once very dominant within yeah. the culture, just like Lambeth Palace dominated the landscape mm. around here, mm. which was largely yeah. fields and moorlands yeah. and so on. But now it sort of feels quite that's small enough. compared yes. to all these other these other sort of buildings around. But I guess the question is. You know, does the vision that has inspired the banks mm. and the um, the office blocks, is that a vision that can really sustain people's lives over the long term and give them that sense of mm. wider enchantment, mm. a bigger view of life? Can it do that or actually does it actually sort of shrink the soul yep. eventually, yeah. reducing yeah. everything to money and power and sex mm. and everything else that we tend to worship these days? Yeah. So we... That sort of makes me think, and it's quite a tricky question, so you can feel free to say you have no answer to this, but <laughs> if there's a deep longing in us for something more, something bigger, something richer, enchantment, um, if we're to believe the census results, obviously people, that is not translating into Christianity yep. as an option of where to yep. find those things. Why? Why? Why wouldn't it be? Why is that sort of, why does it seem like at the same time, oh curiosity in the transcendent things is rising mm. curiosity in christianity mm. you know at least numerically which is all mm. we can really measure it yep. by is um lessening it yep. at the same time yeah it's a good question and i, and I think and there's a number I, I think there are a lot of different answers yeah to sure. it um but part of it let's be honest is that we haven't done a very good job at retelling that story in a way that's okay. that's imaginative and, and powerful um i mean one period of, of history that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is the um, is the 1940s, which I think is the last time we did this really well as the Christian Church. Um, yeah, because in the 1940s there was a big debate going on around what you know, Second World War. What's going to rebuild European civilization mm. after the trauma of Nazism? You know, after a you know a very sophisticated country like Germany had descended into this barbaric regime you know and Europe had been consumed by this destructive mm-hmm. war what is going to rebuild civilization and 
Christians were right at the heart of that debate at the time. So you had people like C.S. Lewis giving broadcast talks on the mm-hmm. radio, a sort of rather crusty academic English professor from Oxford, um, which, and those talks eventually became Mere Christianity, which was published in 1952, I think. Yeah. Um, you had W.H. Auden, um, you know, one of the greatest English poets of the, of the last century who, uh, you know, started out not as a Christian at all, but mm. partly by... Um, confronting the evil of Nazism and then having to think to himself, what, what, what has got the spiritual and moral power to confront something like this and realizing ultimately only the kind of profound um, riches of Christian faith had the sort of moral and spiritual mm. ability to kind of overcome the evil of Nazism. He becomes a Christian and starts writing profoundly Christian poetry. You get yeah. T.S. Eliot doing the same thing mm-hmm. with, you know, the move from the, the wasteland of 1922, yeah. this rather bleak, sort of view of, of, mm. of the world without any great hope in it to the four quartets, which yep. is, again is a deeply Christian um, sort of um, cycle of poems written in the 1940s. You get Evelyn War again, you mm-hmm. know, Brideshead Revisited, mm-hmm. um, you know, deeply kind of Catholic author. You know, he says at the beginning of that book, this book is about the, the various workings of divine grace upon particular individuals and the story of their lives. Mm. Um, you get Dorothy Sayers writing... Yeah. Uh, plays about the life of Jesus again on the radio. You got mm-hmm. um, people on the continent like Simone Vai and Jacques Maritain. You had an Archbishop of Canterbury here at Lambeth, William Temple, mm-hmm. um, with his ideas that partly gave birth to the to the welfare state. You know, the, the Christian democratic movement, which gave birth to the European Union after the Second World War. In other words, you know, these were people who really were re-enchanting their, mm-hmm. their world, and they weren't. Mm-hmm. But they weren't by and large theologians. They were novelists mm-hmm. and poets mm-hmm. and one or two politicians and. Uh, and so on. They weren't clerics, most of them, but they were telling a rich, imaginative Christian story into their day. And that's what we're not mm. doing, I think, at the and, moment. And so, to, to, was, sorry, just in your question, yeah, yeah. Bell, yeah. you know, why, is, yeah. why is the kind of the, the Christian numbers disappearing while yeah. actually the, the spiritual interest is still there? Yeah. It's because I, we haven't told that story very well. Yeah. We're not compelling them. We're not compelling them. I mean, do, do you think there was a bump because of that post war effort, if you like, among that? group of people did we see that translate into you know numbers in yeah. church and that yeah. sort of thing yeah there was i mean actually when you look at the the figures of decline um over um or the figures of going to church decline from the mid 19th mm. century down to the mm. kind of um uh, you know present day the one little blip in, in in that is the late 1940s and early 1950s uh, where you actually get uh, a little bit of an upturn in the mm. number of people going to church, confirmations, baptisms, all those kind of little measures. And um, and I think, I mean, you know, you can't prove these things, can you? But I, I think that the fact that you had these authors, these writers, these thinkers who were articulating this very kind of attractive, compelling, rich Christian vision of the world in the 1940s. Um, in time, it led to people feeling Christian faith was something believable, credible, mm. attractive. Yeah. Um, So then when you had these great Billy Graham campaigns that came on in the early 1950s, he, if you like, reaped the... They'd they'd primed the pump, as it were, for that. That's really interesting. So it seems to me, you know, I I think, I guess what I'm saying is that I think Christian faith has a a huge amount to offer our culture still uh, and people in our culture. Um, And part of the thing is to kind of rediscover that source of wisdom. Mm. Um, So often our, our culture goes to, you know, to other faiths which have great wisdom in themselves but we don't yeah. go back yeah. to the faith it, that is it feels like culture all the time yeah. the big thing though that marks our era from the post-war era that those people were speaking into and is the 1960s counterculture yeah. and yeah. it feels like that changed the game for mm-hmm. me of of just the way you think you know what whether we're, there is such a thing as truth whether mm-hmm. we are interested in in values and love mm-hmm. and morality and so on so so I guess it's not that we can just do what they did. It, we are speaking yeah. into a fundamentally, to some extent, different culture today, aren't we? Uh, yes and no. I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. The 1960s is a big watershed in that, I think. And if you think, well, why didn't that growth continue in the 1950s? Mm. I think the 1960s is the answer. Killed it off. <laughs> there was a whole kind of new sort of movement in those, in the sort of student protests, the 1968s and, and the kind of... Um, you know, flower power revolution, whatever you want to call it, that, that changed the game quite mm. significantly. Mm. Yeah. And um, and and in some ways, positively, it went back on some of the kind of more 
crusty hierarchical kind of ways mm. of thinking of the past. You know, we had we did have deep elements of patriarchy and all those things that were not always terribly helpful. And, and so some of the 60s revolution was quite right and proper. But it seems to me that the Christians didn't at the time have any great answer to that. Mm. Mm, and sure. so you don't get the figures in the 60s and 70s that you had in the 1940s. Um, mm. In the 1940s, they were responding to the kind of rise of this movement of Nazism across Europe and, and, and giving a profound Christian answer to that. You didn't get that in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Mm. And we haven't still got that yet, I don't think. No. And so the Christian no. story lies dormant slightly as like a, an immense source of wisdom, but it's almost like a, like a sort of sleeping giant mm. within, our, within our culture. And, and um, uh, I guess what we're trying to do here is a little bit of a try to reawaken that mm. and, and try to sort yeah. of um, see if we can find ways to retell that story. Yeah in a way that captures the imagination of our friends. And... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, was it N.T. Wright, it might be, who said, and I might butcher it, so apologies. If, if <laughs> Sorry, N.T. Wright. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, who said the part of the genius of Christianity is that each generation needs to sort of refigure it out. And that's not to yeah. say that it's it's changeable in that way, but each generation needs to refigure out how how does our culture need to hear this? In mm. what ways? You know, what 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 is our culture dealing with now mm. that mm. needs the retelling of the Christian faith, of the Christian story? Mm-hmm. So I think exactly like what you've said, maybe, you know, trying to just take a model and pop it in a yeah. different yeah. in a different decade, um, a different century in this case, um, won't won't wait. So what do yeah. you, where do you see the hope? Where do you see oh. the ideas? Oh. What's sparking your imagination and your hope and your excitement for the ways that this can be done for this generation yeah. in this sure. time? Yeah. Well, I think I'm, 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 the things that make me feel it can be done are just those little stories you hear every now and again of people who have stumbled upon Christian faith and yeah. found it something that has met a deep mm yearning and longing within their own hearts i mean you know you, um yeah. i think of someone like a paul kingsnorth for example mm. you know who's a um well known novelist environmental. we're planning to bring him on oh exactly. excellent yeah. Yes. yeah you know he was a um it should be a great conversation because it seems to me reading his the story of his um discovery of christian faith as a kind of environmental activist in the past and yet finding within that environmental activism there was something missing at the heart of it and yet yeah you would describe it as a kind of discovery of a much more enchanted world through yeah and not through any organized you know campaign by the church mm. or yeah. um some deliberate process mm-hmm. but almost stumbling upon yeah. upon it he stumbled into a few other things before i've, I've had the yeah. privilege of, of interviewing him already on on yeah. his journey and you know he he was a sort of teenage atheist yeah then kind of found his way into Buddhism, yeah. then into Wicca, of all things, yeah. and finally Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. And and I'm pretty sure he's sticking there. Um, yeah. He's, yeah. But he's he's kind of, he's a fascinating character. It would be great when we have him on the on the yeah. podcast to talk about his journey. Well, that's right. I, I found, you know, when I was a, when I was a kind of jobbing bishop, as it were, yeah. going around doing confirmations around the um, area where I was responsible, it was just fascinating because every time, you know, you would meet just a little group of, you get the kind of you know twelve year old children mm. who were going yeah. through confirmation as you do yeah. sometimes at twelve, but and they were great, um, great to hear their sort of perspectives. But but almost every time you'd also hear a number of adults who would somehow come to faith and they'd stumble upon this mm. thing as mm. this immense source of wisdom that um, they had suddenly discovered and they couldn't quite believe their luck that they'd found this thing, you know, that everybody else hadn't. And it was it was yeah. um. Yeah. And so, so when I hear those stories, I think, yeah, yeah, this, this, this could happen mm. again and again, not just in isolated individuals here and there, but in a kind of much more wider, wider sense. Um, but I think it's also that that sense of you know we we desperately need it as a culture. I mean, I've been thinking recently, you know, we someone say we 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 face a number of real crises. I think mm. in our culture at the moment, you know, one you could describe as a culture of uh, as a crisis of trust. Yeah, you know, we don't really we don't really trust our leaders anymore. No. No. Um, I was reading recently how you know, the average tenure of a senior executive in a mm. companies has got much smaller now. Mm-hmm. You know, people would 
do these jobs for sort of 10, 15 years. Now it's sort of three or four. Yeah. You know, right. Prime yeah. ministers come and go, as we know. <laughs> Getting um, shorter and shorter. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't trust no. our leaders. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. kind of to throw them out because we don't. And that, that, and that partly is maybe because, you know, we've been told that all leadership is about power and you should always suspect mm. those in power over you. And there's a, there's a grain of truth in that, but if it leads to a culture of suspicion. So there's a, there's a, the crisis of trust, there's a crisis of, of anxiety, it seems to me, yeah. in our culture. That, you know, if you think of the decade of disruption we've been through, we've been mm. through a Brexit referendum that tore us apart. We've been through a yeah. COVID pandemic that locked yeah. us down with who knows what mental impact on us all. You know, we're now in the middle of a cost of living crisis where we can't even afford mm. to heat our homes all mm. of the time. Technology is rewiring a all our brains apparently exactly that's right and we've got (laughs) war happening on europe in europe you know on our doorstep and with the threat of that you know many analysts saying that there could be a third world war on the way if china gets involved you know on the side of russia defense spending across Mm. european countries is going up all the time um and and there's a and there's a crisis of relationship as well in that we you know we become so polarized Mm. in our nation Mm. and twitter is just full of arguments between one side and the other which just is uh, and in one sense, you could describe those three things as, mm. as a crisis of, of faith, yeah. trust, a crisis of hope that we don't have any hope mm. for the future, and a crisis of love that we don't mm. know how to love each other. Mm. And actually, mm. Christians, we kind of know a bit about faith, hope, and love. <laughs> yeah. And actually, yeah. Christian faith is the kind of thing that if you live in it, take it seriously over time, it'll teach you to trust people. It'll give you hope for the future. Mm. It'll enable you to love people that you find difficult to love. Mm. And that's why I think... Our, I sense there's a need for this because our culture desperately needs faith, hope, and love. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've been talking mm-hmm. about for 2,000 years. Yeah. It's, it's there, but it's it's not often told as a story yeah. and yeah. not in a way that compels people. It, I guess my next question is is a little bit of a loaded one, but <laughs> the, the Centre for Cultural Witness is uh, a project of the Church of England. Hmm. And obviously the Church of England is one of our best-known institutions in the UK and has been trying to tell that Christian story and remind people of it in various ways over the centuries. Of course, we find ourselves at this point, when the point we're recording, where there are some fractious debates going on on sexuality, yeah. identity, and so on mm-hmm. in, in the Church of England. Um, I mean, that is your tribe. Uh, and does, is the Church of England the best place to be trying to bring this message of reminding ourselves of the, the hope of the Christian story when it sometimes kind of looks a bit like the culture around it in terms of how yep. people are falling out with each other. Yeah. 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 It's a very valid question. And it's, and someone was saying to me the other day, is this a good time to be starting something like this? <laughs> when the church of England seems to be falling out. Um, oh, I bet you loved that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, my answer was partly, well, this is exactly the sort of time we should be starting something yeah. like this. Um, now, I'm not saying that those debates don't matter. They do matter. They, they, yeah. they go deep to the heart of yeah. Christian faith, sense of identity, of who we are, how God has made us, and, mm. uh, and so on. And they, they're, they're really important debates to, um, to tease out, work out, find ways forward, whether mm. the church can hold together or needs to have some kind of, well, however it works out. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's, that's to be worked out, and that's not the focus of our conversation. But I, th- I suppose a couple of things on that. Um, one thing is that simply the way in which Christians have those debates is going to be really important. The Christian church has always been on the brink of schism. Um, you know, you, you could almost take every single century in the 2000 or the 200 centuries we've had of Christian faith. Um, and, um, uh, and there's been some issue at the heart of it, which has seemed to be just about to split the church right down the middle. Um, Crucial thing is, it's not that we're, sort of, we're all agreed, everyone agrees on everything. We've never really mm. done that as a Christian church. We've always had different interpretations of stuff. The question is, partly how do we do those debates? Mm-hmm. Um, can we do those in a way that is more healthy and constructive and less personally demeaning and destructive of relationships and people? Mm. Uh, I was intrigued by seeing an MP who'd watched the General Synod debate, which was passionate and deeply held convictions being debated. And he said, well, actually, Parliament could learn quite a lot from the, oh, wow. the grace and the, the um, respect that was shown mostly during yes. the debate, mm. um, which I took to be a good sign that, um, yes, that there are some real hard debates going on in the Church of England at the moment, but if we can do, it in, if we can do yeah. those debates in a way that um, 
that is healthier than sometimes. The problem always seems to be as soon as the debate transfers from that face-to-face encounter with a real person to the online world, yeah. it quickly starts to look like mm. the rest of the world, exactly. isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, how do we how do we manage difference mm. within the church? Because you know, I think the differences on these issues are they go pretty deep, and yeah. we're not suddenly going to no. agree on everything, yeah. and they're fairly irreconcilable. And so you've got to find a way to to manage mm. that. And I guess that's the challenge from here on. Um, you know, can Christians, can the church, and the Church of England's not the only church going through these issues. Mm-hmm, Every mm-hmm. church is going through it as well. Can the Church of England find a way to to manage that difference in as healthy and Christian and mm. um, positive a way as possible? Not glossing over it, pretending it doesn't matter, but actually handling difference well. Because um, that's what we're struggling to do in our culture more generally. Um, mm. I do think, just to go to that, um, I do think that the loss of the Christian story is part of why we become more polarized. Okay. Um, if you like it, in the world where there was a general sense that there was a God, there was an order which he had given within the world, and we all fitted in with that order. We all had our different political opinions and approaches and so on, but they were kind of held within a broader mm-hmm. structure. Uh, you know, my political opinions were penultimate, not ultimate. Yeah. Now we've sort mm. of stripped away that sense of there being a broader story, a God who oversees and everything and to whom everything returns yeah. eventually my political opinions become ultimate mm. not penultimate mm. and therefore they become the only thing that matters and therefore if you have a different political opinion so why you are my enemy yeah um, rather than someone I, held within the I love mean, of god as it were i i said I'd, i wanted to mention the title of that book why being yourself is a bad idea and, and for me that's that's partly what the book was about the fact that we live in a culture now where everyone has to invent their own identity, their own, mm. you know, story, if you like. Mm. Be yourself is the mantra. Mm. But that's actually quite a difficult thing um, oh, because oh. It, when we take away that big story that used to define many people, mm. it did at least give a coherence, a, a, a narrative for people to kind of yes. live their mm. lives by. Mm. Do you feel like, it, is that in a sense why being yourself is a bad idea? Because actually oh. it's really difficult to to be a single individual oh. in a in a world awash with different ideas. Well, I, th- I think it's, yeah, I think it is partly that. I think it's partly because ultimately we're not made just to be pure individuals. Um, and the problem with the be yourself advice, which is of course everywhere when you look for it, that's the kind of number one commandment of modern life. You mm-hmm. know, be yourself. And, and the assumption behind that is you have to look inside yourself to your own thoughts and desires and feelings and so on to discover who you really are. Mm. The problem with that is it turns you inside, turns you inwards rather than outwards. Yeah. And it breeds a whole world and generation of people who um, try to sort of be themselves, to find themselves by looking within rather than finding themselves by looking without mm-hmm. yeah. to their friends, neighbors, family and to God. Um, because, again, within the Christian faith, we're told that to be truly human is to be able to love God and to love your neighbor. Um, and yes, there's a loving yourself within that, love your mm. neighbor as yourself. Um, but that, what that seems to be, to be saying is, you know, what, I need to make sure that, you know, if, if I love myself, I make sure that I've got food and shelter and education and all the mm. things that I need. I'm as determined that you have that mm. as much as I do. Mm. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. So in other words, we find our true selves in relationship to God and to one another, not just on our own as individuals. And that's why be yourself is not really a very good idea because it just makes you look in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually where we, we find our true selves only in relationship. And that's really what, kind of core ideas at the heart of the book which again is is disenchantment versus re-enchantment or seen versus unseen it's um you know there might be something comforting in defining ourselves by what we do and you know by looking inward and the stuff we can measure but actually we becoming really disenchanted with that really dissatisfied with that that actually the burden of having to build and then define and then sustain ourselves in our own image actually is exhausting and we are desperately mm. looking for something mm. else yeah. and again where are we finding that then are we finding that in political parties are we finding mm. that mm. in you know mm. tribalism are we finding that in you know mm. a sports team not there's anything wrong yep. with those things but yep. it is that it's like mm. it's it's yeah. that craving of an identity that we can tie ourselves into that's bigger mm. than anything mm. we can sustain 
and the, I don't know if you've come across Alan Noble and some of his his writing, but he he wrote a, a great book recently, which again tied in so much to what you said in in your own book, Graham, where where he was talking about the the kind of intolerable burden oh. of modern culture oh. on especially young people of having to oh. essentially reinvent themselves yeah. every you know every yeah. few years. Yeah. Um, and and he he as a college professor sees you know just the rates of anxiety and everything, and he oh. very much sees that as tied to the loss of this bigger story that you can't yeah. just see kind of step into that bigger story every story is competing you have to kind of build your own identity yeah. and so on and, it, and, it, and it's not just exhausting it's also expensive yes um, yes because yeah. a, a lot of it let's be honest is driven by commercial interests people yeah. want to sell you stuff of course because to reinvent yourself means to have a different look to have a different set of clothes to have a different kind of you know mm. activities that, that mm. you do a lot of it is driven by a kind of commercial economic model that actually benefits from mm. constant reinvention doesn't want you to stay the same doesn't want you to actually just find your meaning in relationships mm. with others but actually wants you to find your meaning in the things that you own and you spend mm. and you you buy and so you know you can't ignore the kind of economic aspects of of, of that cultural shift mm. towards being yourself it sounds like a kind of very sort of nice mystical idea but actually there's a lot of hard-edged yeah. economic interests in yeah. play here as well. Yeah. I mean, if there was one moment which I think collectively we all stepped back a bit from those stories and, and thought about a bigger picture, it, it was definitely the, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. And I remember at the time you you wrote some interesting stuff around that, Graham, about the way that I think you were out sort of being a pastor to the mm. line along mm. with other people from from Lambeth um, to the big queue that, that filed past the coffin. Mm. And and I remember you saying that it felt like suddenly a kind of latent spirituality kind of bubbled to the surface mm. as people suddenly felt the import of this moment and mm. this event and mm. the passing of an era uh, and so on. Mm. So it, it's not that wanting to be part of something bigger has gone away. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it feels like it's still there ready to be tapped potentially. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, that is right. And, and you saw it at that moment of real vulnerability in our... Yeah. in our nation you know suddenly this figure that was the only monarch we'd ever known most of us um suddenly she wasn't there and that sense of permanent something permanent in our yeah. lives had disappeared yeah. and so because so much else is fast changing and ephemeral she was at least a symbol mm. of stability that she would have always been there every fa cup final and <laughs> tripping of the color and queen's birthday and christmas day mm. How many, how many prime ministers had she seen come oh, and gone? I can't exactly, remember yeah. now. Yeah, she but, was she was yeah. just that sim- yeah. symbol of permanence, and you took that away, and we sort of suddenly felt the lack of it, and you felt like this yearning for permanence, and that's why some of the ceremony, the ceremonial, mm. kind of a, was a reassuring thing because mm. it reminds you there's something longer than our own lifetimes mm. and bigger than our own mm. stories that that that, are, that we are rooted in, and I think at that moment you suddenly saw people. Yeah, we, we kind of need permanence. Mm. We need longevity. We need something bigger than ourselves. We need a set of values that will hold us. And she kind of represented yeah. those in her own character. And mm. um, and in, 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 so I think it was one of those moments that uncovered that deep mm. yearning for the mm. for the permanent, for the lasting, for the the transcendent. Um, and I think it's the, surprising the, how quickly it moves on. It does. It does inevitably. But just for a moment, it felt like the Christian story suddenly bubbled up hmm. because obviously the queen herself was a woman of, of great Christian faith. But but there was just that sense, you know, because we were marking the passing of someone from hmm. this world into hmm. the world to come. And and I just felt, you know, seeing all those people wanted to pay their respects, file past, stand for hours in a queue. And when they got to that moment of hmm. facing the coffin, searching for something meaningful hmm. to do hmm. or say hmm. or cross hmm. themselves, even I'm sure many people who, you know, rarely set foot in a church, yeah. but mm. but they they wanted to mark it this as being significant in some way, didn't yeah. they? Mm. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. And you saw all kinds of people, you know, staunch Republicans and staunch atheists <laughs> doing things you never would have thought they would have done um, at that that moment. And it wasn't just sort of, you know, ardent royalists flag-waving all yeah. the time. Yeah. It was mm. kind of almost everybody. I mean, not, not almost everybody, but um, but it, you know, it testified to that deep. Yeah. Um, Yearning and, and, and yearning for sort of symbols and activities and things that you yeah. could do at a moment yeah. of great. Um, and, and I suppose the, the other thing about it, it was a, it was a kind of reminder of our own mortality, too. A very mm. public death mm. like that, mm. 
mm. makes you realise that it's going to happen to all of us one day. Yeah. You know, one day it'll be your funeral <laughs> and yours and mine. You know, and they'll be walking away and they'll leave us in the grave. And yeah. yet, so much of modern life is designed not to make us think about that. Yeah. Just to ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 As I say, I was saying earlier on, I'm really writing a book about Pascal at the moment, and mm. it, it, he couldn't quite get why people didn't think about that. It was the one. Oh, okay. It was the one sort of absolutely sure thing that you can say about everyone's future is yeah. about the one day they will die. But we, how much time do you spend thinking about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Queen's funeral was a, was a moment where we were brought face to face with our own vulnerability, frailty, mortality. That in one sense, mm. yes, she was the Queen, but in another sense, she was an ordinary sinner like you and me. Mm. Um, she was a, a frail old lady who was put into a grave like we will all be one day and so you know it was a when suddenly you're faced with your own vulnerability you need yeah. something bigger than that to hold you yeah and that's what christian faith yeah. offered mm. at that moment and it's what it still offers to people today but as we've been discussing we need to find better ways of explaining yeah. that exploring yeah. it yeah. depicting it wow. yes wow well, it's it seems like an appropriate place probably to start to wind it does, today's episode it? up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Graham, for being with us. Um, it's been a pleasure. We're, we're looking forward to finding other ways through the guests we speak to in this podcast, mm. aren't we, Belle, of, yeah. of how we see those echoes of the Christian story, not yeah. necessarily through yeah. something as, as massive as the, the death of Queen Elizabeth, but, but in all kinds of ways mm. we want to yeah. help to bring out to the surface the way in which the Christian story is still shaping yeah. our stories and yeah. the way in which we could see yeah. The re-enchanting of our culture through that story. Yes, absolutely. And the places that are missing it. I think yes. that's important as well. The places that are crying out for it. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you, you very much, Graham. Pleasure, thank you. Well, I think it went quite well, Belle. I think first we did episode. Okay. I think we've <laughs> think we've cracked that one. Um, thank you very much uh, for watching, for listening. Um, if you want more from Reenchanting, then uh, you can find us with more guests in the future as we continue to broadcast more episodes of the podcast. Uh, Seenandunseen dot com is the place Seen to go. Seenandunseen dot com. But for now, thank you very much for being with us, Graham. You've been listening to Reenchanting. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and it helps others to discover the show. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time. <laughs>